What's up, OUXers? Today we're talking to Samuel Hulick, the person behind User Onboard. User Onboard is all about helping designers and companies not only onboard their users smoothly, but also retain them in the long term, which is a big part of user experience design. Samuel is most known for running useronboard.com and also as the author of The Elements of User Onboarding. But today, we're going to be talking about Value Pass, which is the next evolution in Samuel's thinking on getting users from point A to point B and defining point B as these super outcomes that the users are actually seeking. So we're going to be talking about super outcomes quite a bit. Value Pass, as it sounds, is all about processes and steps and actions. And you might be thinking, wow, that sounds like the antithesis of object-oriented UX. But no, all right? Samuel, Samuel and I have been encouraging each other on Twitter for a while, and we've talked before about how Samuel is a big fan of OUX, and I'm also a big fan of everything he's doing with User Onboard. And while listening to the first few episodes of the Value Paths podcast, which Samuel hosts with his colleague, Johan Kunders, I am totally sold on this approach. It's basically a better take on the action-oriented stuff that needs to complement all the OO stuff that we do over here. So at the end of the day, both OUX and Value Pass are philosophies to help designers get to the real core of the valuable stuff, helping us start there before we get into design implementation and components and buttons and UI. All right, after the show, definitely check out connect.valuepass.com to dig into a whole wealth of information there. All right, let's go talk to Samuel. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Object Oriented UX podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head on, gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, and designing scalable, future proof, and of course, naturally intuitive object oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, facilitator, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, UX designer, chief evangelist of Object or UX, and your host. Let's jump into it. <laughs> okay, so All you right. were saying crisis of faith. <laughs> so I was. Your work came onto my radar around four to five years ago, so roughly in the earlier days of, of OOUX. And at, at that time in my career and in my life, I was starting to experience a sort of crisis of faith uh, in the, I guess what you would call traditional UX, traditional product design practices and even just the foundations, uh, the fundamental premises uh, that our industry uh, industry's practices are built on. And so for me, it was really like a breath of fresh air to see that somebody else was standing up and being like, I don't think we need to do it this way all the time. And like there might, let's hold open the possibility that there are different approaches to user experience design that are actually more effective than the way that everybody's just kind of going through the motions. So uh, that really spoke strongly to me at the time and, and continues to do so. Yeah, I mean, you've been um, kind of cheering me on 
and encouraging me or egging me on, however you want to say it, on Twitter for a while, which always makes me feel really good and always validates me. But um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're here to talk about value paths, which I think is really exciting. I just le- listened to your most recent episode with Johan, oh, cool. and I think like if somebody hears value paths, they're gonna think that's kind of funny because value path sort of sounds like it's about processes and steps and actions. And that might actually seem sort of like the antithesis of OAUX. (laughs) But I know that like everything that I listen to on your new podcast, I'm just nodding my head and agreeing with. And a lot of what I say, like just what you said, a lot of what I say about OUX, you agree with. So there is like this connective tissue between value paths and OUX. And I think that they can like go really nicely together. (laughs) So, I mean, I think we might get into some debates here, but we might also find a really awesome way for our methods to like merge together, maybe, or meld together or complement each other. so, yeah, are you up for it? I, I I am up for it very much so, I, and I I concur on the the notion of the interoperability of the two different methods or frameworks uh, as being the most exciting part. But I'm also more than happy to uh, explore areas that we might disagree or things like that. And uh, just want to say before we get into it, like it's it is. Speaking from my own personal experience, I'm assuming this is the case for you as well. Like it is not easy to swim against the current of your industry and to say, wait a minute, like, I don't, I don't think we should be doing things this particular way. And I think we should think these things through a little bit more. And so my hat is off to you already just for taking that on and for sticking it out as long as you have and getting, gaining the the momentum that you have. So uh, personal big ups on that one for sure. Appreciate it. Yeah. Right back at you too. I mean, it, there is, it's interesting because we do have a relatively new industry. I mean, one of my, one of my mantras, especially that I tell to new user experience designers is even if you're just coming in this year, this minute, you're part of the, this like pioneering cohort, like this is all just getting started. (laughs) We're just now figuring out how to do this. Um, so to have any kind of systems that are so entrenched that we can't question them. Um, I, yeah, I think that, I think we should be questioning, um, these systems and I are these, um, methodologies and be open to new methodologies. And, um, and actually what's interesting is from listening to your podcast and thinking about, okay, what is that? And we're going to get to super outcomes, but like, what is that super outcome that I'm trying to deliver Uh to user experience designers. And it's not OUX. OUX is the product. What Mm. I'm trying to deliver is confidence in tackling complexity and and confidence in facilitating and collaboratively tackling complexity. Like that's what, and just OUX is the best method I've come up with so far (laughs) to do that actually. But that's really this, like the super outcome that I'm trying to get to. Yeah. Well, and, and, and by proxy of that, also having the people who feel more confident managing the complexity produce products that provide better experiences to the end users as well, I would think. Right. Oh, heck yeah. I mean like the, okay. If we even take it a, uh, 
level of amplitude further. I mean, what I have kind of on my big vision statement is to make technology more humane. <laughs> like mm. That's really what I'm trying to do. But it's like, it's both of those things. I think that UX designers have, are, a lot of UX designers are really frustrated in the work that they're doing because of the things that Value Paths is trying to fight and OUX is trying to fight. And that is that that myopic view on the implementation on the screens and the layout and the interface and jumping to that before really saying like, what are we actually trying to provide people with here? Um, so, and I think that's just frustrating for a lot of UX designers, the environments that they're in is they are sort of stuck in these like feature factory or, you know, moving the deck chairs around on the screen when there's bigger systemic issues. Um, so it's both of those things. It's like helping UX designers have more fulfilling careers through tackling complexity and then to have more, a more fulfilling career. That means you're making more systemic change <laughs> and that you're actually creating better technology. So yeah, it's yeah. all those things. 100% agreed. Um, we should probably I, I, define value paths soon. <laughs> that's probably wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, Samuel. What is Yes, Sophia. Tell, tell me about <laughs> tell me about Value Pass. Please can you explain Value Pass? And if you include that bike training wheels example, that would make me very happy. All right. I will endeavor to do that. Okay. So in a similar way to how you found an area of oversight within our industry and, and wanted to take that problem on with a greater degree of rigor and seriousness and take more mm -hmm. responsibility for, for a particular aspect of user experience design. That was a, a similar thing for me uh, four or five years ago as well, when I started focusing on the fact that every time that something is used, it is used to change the users current circumstances in some way to make them more desirable so very straightforward example would be like a light switch if i'm like hey the room is too dark i wish it was brighter i can interact with the light switch and use that to change the conditions of the room to be brighter or i can do it in reverse and turn off the lights and make it darker and in a similar way anytime that somebody uses uh software they're always trying to change the conditions of reality in some form or fashion. And it's always, this is also super relevant, it's always outside the app of what they really are trying to, to accomplish. And right. so looking, looking at the fact that like, yeah, we want to design products that have a good overall quote unquote user experience. But really, I think that what we need, if we're working in units of user experiences, those are always predicated on people trying to accomplish something. And our design efforts should, in my opinion, be much more rigorously and responsibly uh, focused on all of the complexity there, rather than just being like, this persona has four goals and we'll, we'll just keep that in mind when we're designing a composition of rectangles screen by screen. So for me, the idea is to really to, to distinguish between the fact that a lot of product decisions get made on the company's timeline, where mm -hmm. you're thinking in terms of our company is about to hire another 20 people, or we're about to hire our, our first 
growth person or UX person or wherever you're at in your company timeline, you've got clients, you're trying to grow your MRR, you're trying to get uh, better features pushed out. These are all company timeline considerations, but your product that you create is always experienced on the user's timeline where they just came out of a meeting and they need to get directions to the restaurant that they're going to. And so they pull up a particular app and they're just looking to get to a point where they have a particular uh, outcome that gets reached. And they're hoping that the app can help them with that. And what Value Pass focuses on is really, really exploring the ins and outs of what it takes to identify what somebody is hoping an app will help them with and then to actually make good on getting them there rather than just using that as like a marketing or positioning uh, uh, element in just kind of selling a one-size-fits-all product to a bunch of different market demographics rather than thinking, how can we just really, really nail a particular outcome that we know a lot of users who come to us are looking for and that we know that when those users reach that outcome, it results in positive business outcomes for us in the form of long-term customers, better LTVs, faster CAC payback, things like that. Bunch of bunch of financial work term acronyms. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not even going to ask. Yeah, I'm not even going <laughs> to ask you about those. But what I do want to, so I think that like a really good example of this, and where like the light bulb went on for me on right. focusing on that value path, focusing on understanding where is the user now. What is that supremely awesome outcome that right. they are looking for and understanding that and then figuring out what is in between? And that is where we might debate a little bit on the what is in between. Um, I would love to. I didn't <laughs> I didn't make I didn't make good on my promise to get to the to the bike story, though. So I can I know I that's can, what I want to hear. So you got to right. tell the bike story about the kid trying to learn to ride a bike. Yes. So when I was a kid, I uh, the way that you learned how to ride a bike was to have training wheels added to a normal bike so that you could focus on figuring out the pedaling and steering parts of the bike. And then you remove the, the training wheels. And once you've got the pedaling and steering down, you can take get rid of the training wheels. And that's when you focus on the balancing part yeah, of right. riding a bike. Same for me. And yeah. And so I distinctly remember as a kid, uh, the way you learned to, to ride a bike was eventually one day the training wheels come off and you just keep trying uh, and falling over and getting cuts and bruises until eventually you're like, oh, okay, I kind of got the gist of this. And then you're pretty much good after that. Uh -huh. And it's, I always thought of it as like a rite of passage where you got to dig the gravel out of your scrapes. You got to <laughs> get the uh, the, you know, the, ha the, the handkerchief sling for your arm or a pack of ice or whatever. This is just like, right. This is learning to ride a bike. That's how it goes. And I was anticipating as a parent uh, of, I have a, a recently turned 11 year old son. And when he was younger, uh, I was thought, Oh, I, I should try to be there for him and have the handkerchief slings and the ice packs and so on and so forth. But in his case, it turned out to be different because instead of getting him a bike with training wheels, we just happened to get him what is called a balance bike, which is instead of a bike, a normal bike with training wheels added to it, it's a normal bike with the pedals removed. And the kid can use their own foot power like the Flintstones to push the bike along. And in that case, they're learning steering and balancing 
before they learn pedaling. So the training wheels versus balance bike form factor implies a different process of learning how to unlock those three different skills. And in the case of him, where we graduated him from the balance bike to a regular bike uh, in the same way that there was like the ceremonial removing of the training wheels when I was a kid. And I was running behind him, you know, ready to run behind him and, and pick him up when he fell and, you know, just help explain that life has ups and downs and it's okay to get hurt. And and then instead he just almost to my disappointment, just, just tore off. He just, he was like, okay, bye. And just like, he's like, cool. This is like a balanced bike with pedals now. And he didn't fall at all. He just fast forwarded directly to the point where he was able to unlock steering, pedaling and balancing with no tears, no scrapes, no gravel in the cuts and things like that. So uh, I think that that's an illustrative example of if we are working in an industry where we're trying to create as good of a user experience as possible, there are a lot of companies out there, training wheel companies that are imposing a particular not ideal order of operations to arrive at a particular outcome. And there are a lot of UXers out there who are tasked with improving the user experience of training wheels, even though that's kind of, are we allowed to swear on this here too? Oh, fuck yeah. Okay. (laughs) Even (laughs) Uh, That'll probably be the only F-bomb. Sorry. Okay. Now we're going to need to have this little E on this episode. All right. That's okay. Go for it. All my podcast episodes come with an E. So (laughs) you can just make it the Samuel Hulick effect. But but, so we have these uh, user experience people working on, on improving the user experience of training wheels, even if that whole underlying premise is kind of fucked to begin with, especially in terms of the end users not having scrapes and cuts and bruises and things like that. Yeah. And that comes with, I mean, I I think a lot of that, and I I do want to get into talking about silos because you not only have companies that are thinking about the training wheel company, but then they've divided themselves into teams. Whereas they're like the tire team and the spoke team (laughs) and like the spoke team and the tire team don't talk to each other. Um, And so you get this kind of, uh, you get user experience designers sometimes very zoomed in into a a feature or a screen or um, a small series of screens or even a section, like a slice of the journey map. I'll see teams divided like that a lot of the time too. And um, like what kind of, I guess when, I guess my question for you is, is if we want to zoom out a bit more and we want to say, okay, we need to zoom out. We need to think about like, we're not a training wheel company. We're a helping kids ride a bike company, um, Mm -hmm. learning to ride a bike, or even like, are we helping kids exercise and explore their neighborhood company? (laughs) Like, is it even wider than that? If you're a boots on the ground UX designer that is in that that is working on the spoke team at the training wheel company, what is your advice to that person who is you know knows that they need to zoom out? But it, can you do this? Can you do this in a grassroots way, or does this have to come from leadership? I think it does have to come from leadership. Uh, I, I unfortunately, I, mm. I would prefer to live in a world where that's not the case, and. I, I myself 
uh, firsthand experience, secondhand experience, hearsay, whatever. Uh, I've seen it all the way, all across the board where you user experience uh, there. I don't know if you want to call them like the soft skills kind of jobs, but like user experience, customer su uh, support, customer success, a lot of these companies that have less quantifiable relationships with revenue tend to get backburnered, tend to get sort of defanged where they, 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 a lot of times a user experience person might be hired to come in by, and a company says, oh, we have these, you know, we've got UX debt that we need to pay off because we haven't really been listening to our customers for however long. And that person can come in and look at a comprehensive user experience like you were talking about with the silos of the, the wheels team and the spoke team and the, you know, whatever that attaches the, the bracket team, I guess it yeah. would be or whatever. Yeah. And, and it, I, I have seen so many times where the user experience person or even a customer support person can see the end-to-end -end experiences that users are actually having. And the fact that users have to go through all of these different siloed experiences that almost feel like different companies mm -hmm. just to arrive at the goal that maybe the marketing team promised with zero coordination with the spoke wheel bracket team to begin with. And so to me, it's, it's, it's a question of really being able to identify quantifiably which are the, which outcomes are people coming to us the most for and which of those outcomes most strongly correlate with the whole alphabet soup of financial acronyms that I threw out there earlier. But, but to get really serious in, in saying, um, like I, my, my immediate background is, or, or more specific than user experience is, is user onboarding. That's, the, that's an area that I've been focusing on for a long time. Right. And it, there are, uh, when people come to me, maybe, I don't know if this will be illustrative or not, but, but when people come to user onboard uh, for help, uh, my business partner, Johan, and I have found that uh, there's a real mismatch in the paradigm uh, of, of what they're seeking help with and what we're set up to provide them with. So when companies are looking for user onboarding help, a lot of times they're trying to think of mm, how can we change our tooltip tour or how can we change the welcome experience or should we include an introductory video or not or should we have the to-do list or not and how many steps should be in the to-do list and all these questions of like how do we manufacture a product experience that gives good vibes and hopefully leads people to success. Whereas to me, you start with the figuring out how to get to people to success and you figure out, okay, if like, let's, uh, like, let's say we're an invoicing company, there's mm -hmm. probably a very good likelihood that if we have a 14 day trial and the people who can get an invoice sent and paid and actually get to realize the value of our service are probably significantly more likely to convert in, out of that trial than the people who didn't. Sure. And so you can use that as a, as a proxy for a particular amount of how your revenue is generated. You know that each week you're getting X number of signups and some percentage of them go on to actually get an invoice paid 
And we know that maybe the majority of those people go on to convert, whereas the majority of the people who don't get their invoice paid don't go on to convert. You can start putting a dollar amount to the actual behavior of the users within your system. And the more that you can identify what we're calling super outcomes, like the things that the users care about outside of your system and orient your system around producing that, it just follows that you're going to be generating more reliable and more sustainable business outcomes for yourself as well. And I think that, I mean, when you talk about what these clients are coming to you for, it sounds like they're coming to you for (laughs) band-aids like if we can put if we can make a better better tool tips or a better kind of product intro tour or product intro video maybe people will be able to get to that invoice sending sooner and what you're saying is you need to get deeper into the actual systemic problem is that correct yeah i i think that the the mindset that a lot of and it's not to like put down you know, my clients, <laughs> certainly, <laughs> or any, anything along those lines. But, you know, it's, it's uh, j- just to, as a way of illustrating the difference, like you can look at onboarding as a feature almost of your product that could theoretically lead to a better overall user experience of the product itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's kind of the mindset that people generally are coming to us with. And the mindset that we try to steer them toward instead is to say, let's say that your product did have a great onboarding experience. Uh, like, let's just say we may wave a magic wand and you have the best tooltip tour in the world. What is it that it's getting people to do? Or if you have a to-do list, like the things that go in the to-do list, the actions that you have people take is significantly uh, more important than the presentation of the to-do list. Sure. You're, right. What you're really doing is, is you know another example that we use is like making pancakes out of pancake mix where you want your pancake mix to result in good pancakes even though there are a number of different actions that the user has to take in between possessing pancake mix and having pancakes like turning it into batter whipping it in a bowl heating up the griddle pouring it on the griddle flipping it all kinds of different things that you have to do and and there's a, a choreography of actions that people need to take in order to go from their current state that's driving them to your product to their desired state that you're hoping your product can get them to. And to me, looking at the transition from the current state to the desired state is, should be in my, truly in my opinion, should be the primary focus and the product should adapt itself around that rather than vice versa. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And I want to, I want to just back up for a minute because I want to And I kind of want to level set, (laughs) if that's okay, okay, on current state of OOUX and how in the OOUX process we think about paths and we think about getting users from point A to point B. So can I just, can I go through that real quick? Is that all right with you? Please. Because I think there's like, there's a macro, I don't think. There is like a macro path that we pay attention to and then these micro paths. And then there's everything in between. And I kind of want to get your thoughts on this. So, okay. So I often say that the ORCA process, so ORCA stands for Objects, Relationships, Calls to Action, and Attributes. And it's basically an iterative process. That's the iterative process that I teach in my courses and in my workshops. 
that is you know, object-oriented. So I say that the, the ORCA process is a garbage in, garbage out process. It is a process. If you imagine the double diamond of research and design, you can put the ORCA process right in the middle as a way to like take in all the research and turn it into structure and information architecture, uh, object-oriented information architecture. And then you can um, get really, really nice structure that wireframes can hang on to. And you can actually start building interfaces and screens once you get into the design process. But it is also, it's, it's, a, it's a process for creating that structure, that really intuitive structure, but it's also a process for coming up with a whole lot of questions and often helping you realize that you're not ready to go into design, <laughs> helping you realize <laughs> that you actually need to get spit back into research um, because it just exposes all the assumptions. So one of the things that that is kind of the input that we need really good input. We need good research going into the process or the process will just spit you back out. It's like, no, 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 (laughs) you don't have enough research. You got to go back to it because we're generating all these questions and we're, you know, shining the light on all the dark, dirty corners of complexity. So one of the inputs into this process is journey maps. Um, any kind of maybe like high level user stories, um, uh, goals, user goals. If you have personas, um, you've done research, you figure out like, okay, here's our main personas. Here's our main goals of the, the, the change that they want to see. So all of that goes into the first step of the process, which is noun foraging. So, you know, we're looking at journey maps. We're looking at use cases, um, user stories, uh, even some like maybe a PM has sketched out some task flows that you can, you might rip up later, but you're going to look at it and start foraging for the nouns. And you're looking for those nouns that get used over and over and over again. And that kind of kicks off the process of trying to identify what the objects are. So that's one side, like the very, very high level journey map. And I'm definitely going to ask you the difference between a value path and a journey map in a second. Um, (laughs) So we kind of take all of that in. And if as long as the research was good, the output output should be pretty good. The other one, the other place that we talk about paths is in the C of ORCA, so calls to action. And this is kind of where we sort of uh, hand off to interaction design. So what we're doing is we're thinking about all the all the actions that a user might want to take on an object. So what what does an object call a user to do to it? <laughs> what does it invite yeah. a user to do to it? What are the affordances? Um, like we, you're going to use the word affordances liberally. Um, what are the affordances of the object? And then that kicks off into the interaction design, which might be a series of steps to you know get to one of those more micro goals, like even creating an account. I consider as a call to action on the user object, you're creating an instance of yourself, Um, but it might be create event or invite people to the event or um, uh, launch an event um, or add pictures to the event. So those might be things that I would do to an event object. So that's kind of like the macro way that I currently am thinking about um, uh, kind of procedurally, I guess, Uh, getting users from point A to B is that sort of like, overall journey map uh, input into the ORCA process. And then also identifying those calls to action as entry points into interaction design. Does that all make sense at least? It does make sense. Okay. I have a, I have a follow-up question. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe an illustrative example here. So at, at one point when you were talking about 
when you got to the C in Orca, call to action, uh-huh. where you were saying that maybe, I think one example was maybe somebody wouldn't wa- want to invite somebody else to an event. Right. And so where my mind goes when you say that is, oh man, there's all kinds of different things that have to happen outside of that particular object that's kicking off the event in order for that event to succeed. Like the person needs to send the invitation. Maybe they would want to review what the invitation looks like. Maybe they would want to be able to write the body copy themselves, or you set them up with a template or something like that. And then you got to think about the, the email invitation, assuming it's over email being delivered. And is it going into like their main inbox or their priority tab in Gmail? And then how, like, what's the subject line that's going to get the person to click on it. And if they don't even know what they're being invited to, then that's probably not going to work out. So you got to do some like hardcore context setting in that invitation and then get the person to click through. And then they probably have to create an account before they can officially RSVP. And that requires a bunch of steps, sort of like the making pancakes thing where it's like, man, when you actually just think of like point A, point B, there's a whole, uh, you could think of like a, a series of step stones that mm. needs to arise to in between those steps to help afford the user through through the that, that particular mm, flow. And yeah. so that's, I guess, maybe the biggest question, I don't know, maybe of difference between our perspectives or if that's where like the hinge where ours kind of meet and complement each other. But I guess my question for you would be, if you're focused on formalizing the objects, which I don't disagree with, like that would be the idea of like saying like, we don't want our step stones to be shapeshifter step stones where people think they're about to step on a frog, but it's actually the stone and you just learn that that's the case. And so you, you just, I don't know why frog came to mind or whatever. That would be an unpleasant thing to step on, I guess. But yeah. So like, I understand that you want to have some intelligibility and predictability in the form of the step stones that you create. But yeah. to me, it's the aligning them from where the person is to where the person's trying to go. That's of the most important part. And in your case, I, I, I if you're just like taking a user journey at face value, I would worry that you would be making object oriented training wheels almost. Right. And you know what I mean? And exactly. So I, exactly. Yeah. 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 So and I, how, how do you approach that part? Well, that's what I want your help with. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. and, and, and that's where I think the hinges. So one, I mean, all the stuff that you were talking about, like, you know, that would go into once I invite somebody to event, that's definitely like, that's just not something that we tackle. That's that's something that, and I don't think we need to because we have value pass, right? We have we have you. Um, so, to, but those are all important things to be thinking through that I think a lot of people aren't thinking through. What I think OUX does is says we need a concept of an event, and inviting people is something that we want to do. Like, is that the is it the correct thing, and is this the correct thing that people want to do to it? And then all the steps that they need to make that successful is at the micro level, yes, you could use value pass to do that. And you should be, I think everybody should be using value pass, but then that's what the macro level, that's where we say, it's almost like value path at the macro level can help inform your object or in UX. And then your object or in UX can help for, can help inform your value pass at the micro level. <laughs> so it's almost like value paths, OUX, like macro value path, OUX micro value path as far as like what people want to do to those objects, but figuring out what objects you need, like 
is event the right object? Is that going to actually help people? Like if you're, if the transformation you're trying to make is help people connect with their neighbors more, let's say that's what it is. Connect, connect, connect. You're trying to help people connect with their neighbors because we have a loneliness epidemic and we've realized that people are want, we've done some research. We feel like people want to, we know that people want to connect with their immediate neighbors, the people that are within a 10 minute walking radius, let's say. Um, and we want to create something to help people, you know, connect with their neighbors. Then we would need to decide, okay, well, what things in this interface are going to help? What concepts do we need to help them actually go from feeling isolated from point A of feeling isolated to point B of feeling deeply connected with their neighbors. And Mm -hmm. so then we would go through all that research uh, and figure out like, okay, people keep saying event or meeting or get together probably we need some sort of concept of a, of a get together or an event. Um, and then we need to define that thing and how people want that set up and how, and then all the things that they would want to do to that thing. Uh-huh. Uh, if I could ask another question, yeah. when let's say that you're using OOUX to coordinate uh, team activity, because one big okay. part of what you're saying is like, it helps people manage complexity not only in their own minds, but also to like form consensus or about that complexity with their teammates. Right. Right. Yeah. And so in, in that sense, like if you're looking at the research and trying to figure out what the different objects should be, it sounds like there is a tight pairing between object and action, but I'm trying to understand like, other than just seeing that action, like particular, uh, uh, that that some actions are referred to more than others in the research like is there a way for for object oriented uxers to be able to determine which actions are more uh worth investing in so to speak uh even regardless of how frequently they come up or how critical they should be or how how object worthy they are i guess Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, we go through prioritization for the O's, the R's, the C's, and the A's. And that prioritization, um, so we prioritize objects, prioritize the relationships, and the CTAs, and the attributes. Um, And often, that is where we end up recognizing we have more assumptions. So in prioritizing objects, I mean, first, or prioritizing the calls to action. So first, we describe the why so why somebody would want to do the thing and when so like are there any prerequisites for them like like what kind what is their context for when they're doing that and simply by articulating that often we realize that our why is pretty faulty or pretty shaky we're like oh we're just kind of making something up we actually don't understand why somebody would do this um then that would be another opportunity to kick us back to research so we do like kind of lean on research i think that OUX really is more of a tool for coming up with questions than it is necessarily to come up with answers. Uh, It helps document those answers once you do get them and structure those answers into nice architecture. Um, But to be able to say that this, that, you know, a user cares more about inviting um, people to an event and then once you're invited, you know, or let me give a, let me do a better example. A user cor- cares more about um, inviting others to an event than they care about sharing the event on social media, 
or something like that. So we're going to, uh, we're going to lean on research and also um, actually prototyping from a, uh, so prototyping that uh, OUX, if you will, just prototype, prototyping the objects with the mm-hmm. buttons on them and then asking questions in testing. So actually testing without all of the interaction design built yet. So really just validating, are these the things that you would want to do to this thing before we go through all of the effort? And it is a lot of effort to do it correctly, as you know, of what happens behind that call to action? What happens after you click the CTA? For sure. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And then as far as like the, I don't, I'm not trying to turn the tables and just ask you a bunch <laughs> of OUX questions, but if you'll, if you'll allow me one more, yes. uh, what, at an object level, one thing that I really like about the framework is how it, uh, I don't know if standardizes is the right word, but how, how it, it makes not, uh, it, it, it takes each screen from being a blank canvas that maybe you apply like your branding and style guides to, to being more of a composition of consistent elements and components that the, that the user can learn and then rely on knowing about as they mm-hmm. proceed forward. Is, does, is that in the right neighborhood at least? Yeah. And that those components are actually representing a thing that they actually care about. <laughs> so one right. of my one of my mantras, like nobody's coming for the the drop down or the calendar picker or like the homepage tile. Like nobody's coming for your homepage tile. They're coming for whatever mm-hmm. that thing is that's being represented, whether it's an event or people or you know adjoining neighborhood in our previous example, um, you know, park or something within the neighborhood. Uh, message. Those are the things that they're coming for. And those are consistently represented by hopefully a nicely designed design system, but the design Mm -hmm. system is the packaging and you want to come figure out like, what are we actually packaging? So going back to like kind of a real world example, like, and come also, you know, I come from an industrial design background. So if I, I want to figure out, do people want ketchup (laughs) or orange juice or laundry detergent before I figure out the the amazing ergonomic on-brand eco-friendly bottle that it goes in. Totally. Yeah. You package orange juice very differently from motor oil, even though. Exactly. Exactly. And you want to make it clear that this is orange juice and this is motor oil using design conventions, using what we know about um, you know, uh, how people have learned from other sites. So, and then also making sure it's on brand too, and it's beautiful and it's ergonomic and it doesn't hurt people's, you know, eyes to look at it, but (laughs) what's most, what, what should come first really is what is the stuff inside? What is the stuff that it's representing? Um, do they want orange juice or ketchup? And that's what really what OUX is all about is figuring out what are those things, but what we don't do very well is, is making sure that the input, you know, it's really like, I kind of tell people, you know, take what you can get. Like, as far as the input to the process, you might have a marketing site to go on. Like, I mean, so many of my students and people that I talk to research is very slim. Usually it's very scrappy. Um, so I just say like, be resourceful, you know, yay. If somebody's created a journey map, amazing, go with that. And then we're just trying to find out as much truth as we know, and then hopefully come up with a crap ton of questions that we can then, you know, come up with um, 
those questions collaboratively with our stakeholders so they get invested in them. And then we can kind of go back to research to fill in the gap. But what would be a better way to do this, I think, is actually have some of that value path work. So we really and, and use a frame like the framework that you have. So I do need to ask, I need to ask you, <laughs> can you tell me what's the difference between a value path and a journey map? I would love to. I was, I, I, I've been waiting for us to get to this point. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, just to speak frankly, I mean, what, I would like to issue the caveat that I, I truly have a lot of respect for the people in this field. And I, I, I'm not just looking to like talk trash about what I've been doing myself for the last 10 years and, and things along those lines. But when we talk about journey maps, I tend to find that they are overly simplistic and uh, overly representative of wishful thinking, where mm -hmm. there is, you assume that there is a product almost as if it is a static entity that the, like the product exists in the world, the, like the app uh, exists in the world the same way that like a bowling ball or a rake exists in the world, where it is an object, I guess, even including in your terminology, um, that is the journey map does not really, um, boy, I'd, I'd really, I'd like to put this as clearly as I can. The journey map sort of assumes the product as a static point in time and shows what the workflow of engaging with it looks like if everything goes well, usually, mm -hmm. rather than saying, let's identify a transformation that people are going through and then, or, or desire to go through and then reverse engineer all the different smaller steps that need to take place in order to lead up to that bigger transformation occurring and then align our product experience as much as possible across that whole timeline rather than basing the timeline off of our inherent product experience. Does that distinction make sense? Huh. Maybe not. Let me, let me try Go one, one. Go further. Okay. Keep going. All right. So you mentioned having an industrial design background and right. in, in industrial design, you are creating, let's say that uh, you're creating a, uh, the next Toyota Prius model, the 2022 Toyota Prius. You are making a lot of the decisions uh, and, and weighing trade-offs and constraints that are hopefully coming from uh, a depth of research, but also just a depth of expertise about how cars are best made and how engines best function and what the best uh, aerodynamic way to design a chassis is so that the fuel consumption goes down or whatever. Um, you're combining your internal expertise and your familiarity with what your market wants. And you're using that to determine, do people want ketchup or orange juice or motor oil? And then you can kind of figure out what the best packaging of it is from there. Is that a fair representation of the industrial design? Paradigm? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. And so in the point, the, the thing that I like to highlight here is you're making a lot of decisions and then you're releasing a one size fits all static product. Like the 2022 mm -hmm. Toyota Prius is not going to be different if you're getting into it for to go on a road trip than if you're getting into it to go to commute to work 
versus if you're getting into it so you can train your kid how to drive for the first time. Right. The, the car doesn't care, quote unquote. It can't adapt itself to fit what you're doing because it has it, those decisions were made probably years before it even rolled off the assembly line. And so what I would like to highlight as a difference is that when we work in software, we aren't bound by the constraints of the material logistics of the fact that like steel, once you, once you frame a, a yeah. steel door, it's going to stay a steel door. In our case, there is no, there, there aren't like the constraints of materiality. And I think that that's something that we really aren't taking as much advantage of as we could, where instead of thinking of our product as this is the product and it has an experience and the journey through that experience looks like this and thinking of it in terms of singular static uh, uh, resources to instead think of it as a whole choreography of actions that you're guiding the user through to be able to facilitate the transformation they're seeking and providing them with the appropriate resources at the appropriate point in time the right objects at the right time not just the right the right objects universally speaking i think you need to give so this is okay so this is reminding me of another great example you gave of the airbnb example which i ran which i ran into recently um can you give that it's example? It's bizarre, right? Yeah, it's bizarre. sure. <laughs> so, yeah, in that example, uh, I contrast it with a really simple example of like Uber Eats or any of those uh, uh, food delivery apps, where if you load up the food delivery app, you will usually see a list of restaurants that you can browse through. And maybe they have different specials or promotions or whatever. And then you can decide which restaurant you want, order your meal. And then crucially, this is what, this is the the main point here. When you go back to your phone, when you go back to that app to check on your order and see when it's going to be delivered, if you have an open order, it doesn't just show you, Hey, here's all of our latest restaurants. You want to try to pick a restaurant because it knows that you're probably there to figure out what the status of your order is. And so Uh it defaults you straight to that. But, and that's just based off of some very, easily available ambient information about the user. User ID is this, open orders is greater than zero, therefore show them the open order. Like this is not, you know, rocket science. Yeah. But in a similar way, uh, I recently booked a trip uh, or booked a a cabin um, on Airbnb and I pulled up the Airbnb app on the day of check-in during the time of check-in. And it showed me the equivalent of Uber Eats showing me the different restaurants instead of showing me the order that I have open. It was like, have you ever considered being a host? And like, you know, like all of these things that have absolutely nothing to do with with what like it's not even trying and you're like, to what's guess. the code? What's the code right. to the lockbox? <laughs> exactly. That's all I want to know. I'm standing exactly. out here in the rain. Yep, I have a half a bar and I'm just trying to like... (laughs) I have 4% battery, (laughs) one half a bar, and there's probably a bear over there in the woods. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. And it's about like understanding the user's context so that you surface the correct object that they might be looking for. Are they looking for an order? Are they looking for, um, you know, check-in information for a reservation? I mean, it's even like, what part of the object are they looking for? Um, And then 
with that, because we have as much direct, we talk a lot about direct manipulation in OUX, making sure that the actions are like, it's very clear what thing you are acting upon. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. uh, if you're saving something, like I, I throw um, active campaign under the bus all the time, my CRM, there's a screen <laughs> where there's like a save button. And I'm like, I, am I saving the segment? Or am I saving this search? Like I never, I'm like always one, zero, one, zero. What is the thing that I'm actually saving right here? Um, So it should always be very, very clear. What is the thing that you are doing the action to? But yeah, when you know the user's context and you can surface the correct object, you of course bring along all the potential actions that they might want to take on that. Cancel your order, Uh, you know, check order status. get into your Airbnb, unlock door remotely, whatever the things are. Yep. Um, Yeah. And so so like the combination of the two ideas is I think that the general thinking that I'm pushing back against, and I think you are as well, is that you shouldn't be trying to think of your product as the ideal one size fits all or arrangement of objects of like, if we can just get the right objects in the right configuration and then just sell access to this, then everything's gonna work out and users will be happy. I don't think that's the way to, to go about it. I think that really what you wanna do is think almost in your of your product as being like the fallback universal version of what could otherwise be an enhanced segmented version of the product that where you're surfacing the um, where you're making an, an, mm. an, an intelligent guess about which objects to surface at which time, rather than trying to arrange them in the perfect static order and letting the user figure it out from there. Oh, 100%. And that's why often hierarchies are such a problem where we have kind of these drill down hierarchies. And what we can do is we can create that really nice solid foundation of, okay, here's just the truth of the system. Here's the objects. Here's how they relate to each other. Here's what you can do. And then we can layer onto that and start thinking about context and we can start thinking about personalization and we can kind of if we have that nice solid foundation then we can start sort of letting i'm 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 waving my hands a lot right now like kind of manipulate (laughs) that system that web of objects to kind of rotate it even to like be like okay now the user is going to want to probably come in from this angle or see the system from this angle versus that angle um so yeah, I know you have a hard stop in three minutes. It's really, really sad. Um, I'm sorry. I wish it wasn't <laughs> I, the case. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, I totally wanted to talk to you about Facebook ads and how it surfaces goals to me that are very confusing. Um, but I'm guessing we'll just need to do a follow-up. Uh, because Let's do a part two. We'll do a part two. This was awesome. Um, we need to talk more about super outcomes and you know, healthy growth is something that you know you're really... Um, you're really excited about, uh, and, um, and I also, I want to talk to you more about onboarding and how we can think about onboarding from an OUX perspective, which is somewhere that I just haven't really explored a lot in my brain. And I want, I want you to Samuel, I want you to guide me. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, the admir- admirations goes, ugh, the admiration goes both ways. So it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk about this with you. And, uh, it's, it, I don't, I don't know if this is getting overly personal, but like 
it professionally speaking, it has been very lonely for me to be going like, uh, yeah, but maybe we shouldn't be doing all of this. And, and a lot of times people really just like to go with the flow. And so um, it's really been cool to see somebody else out there fighting the good fight. And I really, really uh, uh, am into what you're, what you're working on and, and uh, would love to help however I can. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for the conversation. And I will link to value paths, podcast, a new podcast you have out, uh, user on board. Um, where else do we need to send people to? That would, those would be the two biggies. Your Twitter. You're always hanging out on the Twitters. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend anybody goes on Twitter. I'm trying yeah. to get off of it myself, but oh, you are. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so don't, don't, don't tweet to Samuel. Um, <laughs> cool. Just go listen to the podcast. It's very, very interesting. Thanks so much, Samuel. I'll, uh, I'll let you go and um, have a great rest of your day. Likewise, and keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit objectorientux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing! <laughs>